Good morning, church. Happy Resurrection Day. So please open up to Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. Normally we preach expositionally where we go book by book, chapter by chapter, but given that it's Easter, this will be topical, and this will be the the passage that kind of kickstarts it. So Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 8, the title of the sermon is What Means This Stone? And once you're there, if you are able, physically, please stand as I read the word of God. Starting in verse 1, the text says this. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? asked the men. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he had spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed <clears throat> excuse me, into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. It's the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Lord God, we just thank you so much that we are able to come together this morning, that we are able to open up your word, that we are able to con- uh, consider the most important event in all of history, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would remove me as much as possible from this, God, that those who don't know you will be saved today, that they will come to know you. And those who do know you, Lord, will be more like Jesus in the end, that they'll want to be more like Jesus, and that in everything, God, that you would be glorified because you deserve all glory. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. Please have a seat. So this morning is a very special morning for Christians. On a morning just like this one, 1,992 years ago, some women... According to our text, went to a tomb on a Sunday morning. Okay, but before we start on that Sunday morning, let me backtrack. First, I want to go back seven days before that Sunday morning to the Sunday before that. Ancient Jerusalem was in an uproar. A man showed up to Jerusalem riding a donkey. The multitudes were waving palm branches full of excitement. They shouted at the top of their lungs the words, Hoshiana, Le Ben David, Baruch Habab Hashem Adonai, Hoshiana Be'elion which means, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the Most High. The word Hosanna means save us now. These people knew what they were saying. The son of David was a title reserved for the Messiah, the promised Savior and the King who was to come, who we've been waiting for forever. So for three years, you have this man who was a descendant of David who had done things that had never been done. He turned water to wine, he cast out demons, he healed the sick, he cleansed lepers, he healed paralytics, he restored withered body parts, he raised three people from the dead, he restored sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute, he fed the multitude, he walked on water, he calmed storms with a simple rebuke, he withered a fig tree, he healed an ear chopped off by a sword. And he, in front of some of his disciples, he even transfigured into God himself in their presence. And Jesus did so many more things than even that. And to all these things, they were not done in a corner. 
Okay, there were many witnesses. So Israel knew. They knew this man was different. Israel knew that this man was from God. And so he enters, seven days before our text, he enters Jerusalem in triumph on a donkey. And in so doing, he fulfilled a prophecy that everyone knew about. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, where the king comes on a donkey. The people understood this. And so that's why they said those Hebrew words that I said a moment ago. Those are actually taken from Psalm 118.25. So they had the full expectation that this is the man. This is the one. And they were excited. They were happy. Yet the religious leaders saw him as a threat to their power. So they challenged him at every opportunity over the next few days. And yet he consistently schooled them. So then they conspired to have him killed by their brutal Roman overlords. And the long story short is they succeeded. And that is what seemed weird. That is where this all takes a turn. Because five days after that Sunday, on a Friday, which Christians call Good Friday, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the light of the world, he died. How could this happen? How could the Messiah be killed? How could he be buried in a tomb? How could things take such a bad turn in just five days? His disciples, who once walked boldly with him, were now cowards, hiding from the authorities. Everyone who had hoped that he was the one we'd been waiting for, they were crushed. Now, of course, they failed to understand that this was all part of God's plan. Jesus had to die if God was going to save people, and I'll be talking about that a little later. But they didn't understand that quite yet. So it seemed that God's plans were defeated. Accepting that defeat, a few women went to the tomb of Jesus, hoping to anoint his dead body. You read that text, they were not expecting him to be alive. They went there with perfumes to anoint his dead body. They expected he was dead, their hopes are crushed, they're just trying to do a good thing for a dead man in their mind. But as our text said, when they got there, they were in for a surprise. The tomb was empty, and this is huge. I don't want you to confuse modern tombstones with ancient ones. That's why I put a picture of an ancient one. It's not a person six foot under with a slab on top of them. It's a cave cut into a hill that's covered by a giant circular stone that weighs 4,000 pounds, okay? Now, sealing a tomb would be easy because the stone would be put in grooves that go at a decline. So a couple people could push that thing and it would roll down and stop right in front of that opening and seal the tomb. Opening the tomb is an entirely different matter. It would have to be pushed back up against gravity at an incline. It would take many men. It would take tools, levers, all sorts of things. Now, Jesus' enemies wanted to make sure that no one was going to come with a big team and open up this tombstone and steal his body. So they had Roman soldiers, the most fierce, deadly killers in the ancient world. They had them stand guard at that tomb. Okay, so nobody was going to get into this tomb. Furthermore, Jesus' disciples were not paragons of bravery at this point. They were cowards who were hiding. So there was no team of men who were willing to try to overpower the Roman soldiers to get to the tomb. Yet, as we read, when the women got there on Sunday morning, one just like this one, 1,992 years ago, and I keep saying that to stress the fact that this is history. This is tied to history. This is a real event that happened on a real day on the historical record 1,992 years ago. So they show up, and what do they see? The soldiers are gone. The stone is resting against the wall just like this, and Jesus is nowhere to be found. So I pose a question to you. What means this stone? Now I know I could have said, what does this stone mean? So you're saying, why is he talking like Yoda? But there's a reason. 
In Joshua chapter 4, taking this, my cue from Joshua 4, in the Old Testament, God performed a great miracle at the Jordan River. He stopped the Jordan River so that the armies of Israel can cross. And he commanded each tribe to take one stone from inside the river and then to pile them up, and it would become a monument. And then future generations would see this pile of stones and they would say, what means these stones? And then the old timers would tell them about the miracle that God did. And that way, Israel would continually remember what God did, this great event of salvation. And so the stones were a reminder. They were a symbol. They meant something. So I'm asking my question the same way that the ancient Israelites asked about those 12 stones. But instead of 12 regular-sized stones, I'm asking, what means this big 4,000-pound stone that was not sealing that cave anymore? Okay, what does this stone mean and the fact that the tomb was empty? And that's what we're going to explore this morning. What means this stone? In the text we open with, the question was quickly answered. So I'm going to read verses 5 through 8 again. The angels say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day? And they remembered his words. See, the rolled tombstone means that Jesus rose from the dead. That's what it means. It means he's resurrected. So then that raises a more fundamental question. What does that mean? What does it mean that he rose from the dead? If you think that the answer is merely that he came back to life, then you're not understanding the depth of this question. He did indeed come back to life. That's the start of what it means. And he will never die again. But there's more. What does this mean for us? What does this mean for the future? What does this mean, period? And so the point of this Easter sermon is to answer those questions. Now, the broad point is this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most meaningful event in history. And that's what I'm going to try to show this morning. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most meaningful event in history. And we're going to see this by seeing what Jesus' resurrection means in three areas. What it means in general, what it means for believers, and what it means for unbelievers. Because it is packed with meaning for all three categories, okay? So with that, let's begin. Let's start with what the resurrection means in general. That empty tomb and that tombstone rolled away has enormous meaning for life in general, right? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is resurrected. You see, the empty tomb in this picture and the resurrection of Christ signified the greatest victory in the history of mankind. That is the first thing it means in general. There was a victory when he came out of that tomb. But for there to be a victory, there must be an enemy that needed defeating. And the most terrifying enemy imaginable invaded this world shortly after the beginning. This enemy conquered it. It placed all that's in this world under its foot. And it has ravaged all life ever since. This enemy is not some grand army, nor is it demons, nor is it Satan. In fact, it's way worse than all of those. The enemy is death. God told Adam that the day that he would sin against God, death would enter the world. And we all know how it went. Adam and Eve did sin, and death entered the world. And it has ravaged us ever since. A summary statement of this is Romans 5.12. Paul the Apostle says this. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. Now, what I emphasize there is death spread to all people. Death is totally pervasive. It affects everyone. 
Not only do we lose our loved ones, but we even get swallowed up by it. None of us can beat it. Psalm 89 verse 48 says this, What courageous person can live and never see death? Who can save himself from the power of Sheol? Which just means from the power of the grave. The implication is no one. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 verse 8 in the ESV says, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Collectively, what this all means is we cannot stop death. Mankind cannot create an army that can fight death. We cannot shoot death with a gun, nor can we run faster than death to where it won't catch us. We can't create a medicine that will permanently stop it. We can't sit down at the table with death and make a treaty and have peace where it agrees to leave us alone. We are absolutely helpless before it. Its power over us is total, and its grip is universal. And not only that, the curse on the world is more than just big death, let's put it that way. There's also little manifestations of death that we have to deal with all the time. They're everywhere to always remind us of death's pervasiveness. So, for example, leprosy caused people's skin to rot and look hideous. Their skin was dying. And because it was contagious, society was forced to outcast them. Other people were lame. They had legs that would not work. Their legs were dead. And so they were forced into a life of begging. Others were blind. They could never see the beauty of the world that God created since their eyes were already cursed and dead. So death's reminder was all around these people. And man had no power to fight these smaller manifestations of death. We could not give sight to the blind. We could not fix the legs of the lame, and we could not heal the skin of lepers. And yet Jesus shows up on the scene during his earthly ministry, and he could heal all these things with only a touch, sometimes only with a mere word. These little manifestations of death were swallowed up by his perfect power. They could do nothing against what he would say or do. He could even command people who were dead for a few days to wake up, and they would. Even death had to obey him, okay? Now, of course, when he did raise people, they would eventually age and die again, okay? So, so death wasn't fully defeated at this point, but it was dented. It was dented, but it wasn't fully beaten, not yet. And then the surprise of Jesus's whole earthly ministry is that death claimed Jesus. Death itself claimed Jesus. It swallowed the one who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. It swallowed the life. It seemed like Jesus was just another victim of its power, that nobody could beat this enemy. But was Jesus beaten? Was Jesus a victim of its power? For all of history, death has been swallowing up life. It consumes life, and yet it's never full. Death keeps eating and eating, never stopping. Well, this empty tomb shows that that will be reversed. See, death will one day be eaten up by life. Eternal life will swallow death whole to where death won't even exist anymore. That is a firm promise from God that is given to us. The great enemy that has tormented us for all of human history will be entirely and decisively defeated. Well, let me tell you something about this empty tomb. When Jesus walked out alive, death was defeated. Death, at that point, was punched in the throat, and it's been choking ever since. Now, Jesus didn't destroy it yet, but he beat it. Someone finally escaped its bite. Others, as I said, were raised back to life before, but they died again. Death simply had to wait a while before they got old, and then it would eat them again. But something was different about Jesus. 
He came out of that tomb with immortality. He came out incorruptible. He came out glorious and powerful. He came out of that tomb indestructible. Death can't claim him. It can't sniff him. It's got nothing on him. It cannot touch him. Death was defeated for the first time, and that loss completely secured its ultimate defeat later. That is what this empty tomb means. Jesus' eternal life swallowed up the death that swallowed him. It ate the wrong person, because then he ate it. Okay, Since death was defeated by Christ's resurrection, that shows that death will be defeated again. It will not win. Listen, you look around this cruddy world, it will not be this way forever. A day is coming when Christ will return, and everyone who belongs to him will have the same kind of indestructible and immortal body that Jesus has. Death is going to lose its job. It won't be able to collect unemployment. It will literally go out of existence. For all of our experience, we've only seen death eat life. But how great it will be on that day to witness that life once and for all will swallow death whole. What a reversal. So back to my question. What does the resurrection of Jesus Christ mean? It means that death has been defeated and its days are numbered. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 powerfully states this reality for us. I'm going to quote verses 20 and 22, then I'll skip down a little bit after that. But in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 20, Paul says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die so also in Christ will all be made alive. So Jesus is raised. He's the first fruits. He's the sign that there is more to come. And so one day we will be raised because he's raised. And ultimately, what does that mean for death? We skip down to verses 54 and 55. Paul says, when this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. So yes, the resurrection means the death of death. That is what this empty tomb means. It is the defeat of our greatest foe. Now there's a second thing that it means in general that is really important. The resurrection also means that the ruler of the universe is a man. Now you might be scratching your head on this one. You might be saying, wait, God is the ruler of the universe. God is the king of kings. But listen, God is also a trinity. That one God exists eternally as three divine persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Father sent the Son 2,000 years ago into his own creation as a man. Jesus, fully God, entered his own creation as a man himself. He added humanity to him. Now listen, when Jesus did that, okay, so you have this second person of the Trinity, okay, and in him subsist two natures, divine and human, in the one person. When he did that, he humbled himself. As the God-man, he was not the ruler of the universe. At least for a while, he was not. As God, he was always the ruler of the universe. But with humanity added to him, he was now for a while in a state of humbleness. That is why when the ordained time had come, humans were able to nail him to the cross and kill him. But this was all part of the plan. By Jesus the man being swallowed by death, Jesus the man was able to swallow death itself with his resurrection. And when he did that, his humiliation ended. He was no longer in a state of humbleness, but now exaltation. As I said, 
As God, he was always the ruler of the universe. But as the God-man, he became the ruler after the resurrection. It gets appointed to him by the Father. Consider what Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 clearly says. Now, this is a passage meant to teach you how to be humble. Because, in other words, look at Jesus, you got no excuse. But I want to focus on what this is telling us about Jesus. He says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on the cross. Right? So the God-man was in a state of humiliation. But then in verse 9, For this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, which by the way is a human name, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, again a human name, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, do you see what happened there? That passage tells us Jesus existed always in the form of God. But 2,000 years ago, he humbled himself. He assumed the form of a human living under this curse. <clears throat> Excuse me. He then allowed himself to die. And then the father, after the resurrection, exalted him. How? By giving him the name above every name. This human name, Jesus, is now a name above every name. But what is the only name above every name? God, Yahweh. So now, every single knee in heaven, which means all the angels, and on earth, which means all humanity, and under the earth, which means all the demons and, and those who are lost, every tongue, or every knee must bow, and every tongue must confess that Jesus is Lord, which actually means Jesus is Yahweh. That is what it means in the Greek. This man, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the son of David, is Yahweh, and every tongue will confess that this human is God, right? And he's been exalted, and he's above everyone, okay? Now, this is hugely significant because Jewish people begin nearly every prayer, not all, but most of our prayers, with the Hebrew phrase, Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, which means, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. God is the King of the universe in, in, in our prayers. But what this passage said is through the resurrection of Christ, the man Jesus is now the king of the universe. He is above everyone. He is the Melech HaOlam. After Jesus rose from the dead, look what he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18. It says, Jesus came near to them and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Not some authority, all authority. So then, what means this stone? What does the resurrection of Christ mean? It means that death is defeated. It was defeated by a man, and now that man happens to be the invincible ruler of everything that has ever been made. That's what this stone means. Jesus is God. Jesus is a man, and that has huge implications for we who belong to Jesus, and I'm going to come back to that, okay? Because now what we're doing is we're moving to the second part of this, the next area in which Jesus' resurrection has massive meaning. What does this mean for us, for believers, you see, in general, as I've said, it means death has been beaten, its days are numbered, and Jesus is the king of the universe. And I say that to remind you that he is not this weak little hippie that's dying to be everybody's friend. No, he is a consuming fire that will execute the vengeance of God 
upon all humanity that is still in their sins. He is the powerful, mighty king of the universe. His eyes are like fire, according to Revelation. He sees all. His mouth is a sword, right? And so that is what the resurrection is going to mean for the world, judgment. I'm going to come back to that. We first need to ask, what does Jesus' resurrection mean for believers, for those who belong to Jesus? What does it mean for Christians? Before the crucifixion of Jesus, he made this promise to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 19. He says, in a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. Simply put, he's telling them the world's going to kill him. They're not going to see him anymore. But then he tells the disciples they are going to see him after that. Why? Because of the resurrection. He will be raised up from the dead with indestructible life, and he will appear to his disciples. Their sadness, their despair, their mourning, it will all be transformed into rapturous joy. That's what he's promising. But notice what's at the end of the promise he makes to them. At the end, he says this. He says, because I live, you will live too. So what does that empty tomb mean for believers? It's hope. It's hope. Now, in the Bible, the word hope means something very different than the way we normally use it in our culture. Usually in our culture, when we say hope, we're talking about something that we want to happen, but we doubt it actually will happen. It's some desired outcome that we really wish might come to pass, but we're thinking, no, everything's against me. The universe is against me, but I hope for it. You know, that's how we use hope in this culture. That is not how it's used in the Bible. In the Bible, hope means a lot more than that. It is certainty, not doubt. It's usually a noun, right? We, we don't hope, we have a hope. There's this absolute outcome that's going to happen, 100%. There's no chance it can't happen. Why? Because God promised it. And because God promised it, it is 100% certain to happen. And so the Bible calls that promise our hope, okay? So hope in the Bible actually means to have an absolute certainty in God's promises, There is no doubt about it. It's an expectation that you know is going to happen. Okay? So, I said the rolled stone in the empty tomb means hope for the believer. What is that hope? What is that expectation of absolute certainty? Our own resurrection. Before he died, he said, because I live, you will live too. That's a promise. And listen, when he died... The disciples were heartbroken. They were fearful. But when that Sunday morning came and the women found that stone rolled away and that tomb empty and they heard the angels tell them he's risen, these words probably began to ring in all their ears. Because I live, you will live too. They then all got to see Jesus and spend 40 days with him according to the book of Acts. They got to touch him to see that it was a real body, powerful body. They got to eat with him. So yay, when we're resurrected, we'll be eating still. They got to see him do amazing physical things like teleport, walk through walls, and even ascend into the clouds. He lived because he was raised with the immortal resurrection body. And so what that means is when he says, because I live, you will live too. He's saying, because I'll be resurrected with the body like that, so will you. We're not going to be resurrected with these bodies. My back hurts even as I'm talking. That's not going to be the case then. Okay? That the hope he is talking about here is us having a body like his. So that empty tomb means that those who belong to Christ will one day have a body just like his glorious body. And just as death could not touch his resurrection body, it will not be able to touch our future resurrection bodies. 
So the resurrection of Christ is hope for us. It is the certain expectation that it is not always going to be this way. It's not always going to be like this. Sin and death continuing to ravage the world will not last forever. The fact that our Lord conquered sin with his death and then conquered death with his resurrection means that these unbeatable enemies have already been beaten by our king. Jesus is just waiting for that special day picked by the Father, and then boom, in a twinkling of an eye, we will be changed, and death will be no more. Sin will be no more. Why? Because he lives, we who believe will live too. What an amazing promise. And this should definitely affect the way we live, right? If we say we believe, should this not change how we live? If sin and death, if the sin and death that represent this world are temporary, then this world is temporary. And if the eternal life and perfection and power will represent the new world to come, then that world will be permanent, not temporary. So which one's your true home if you're a believer? The temporary or the permanent? It's the permanent, okay? And so which one should you live for? As a means of illustration, in the Army Reserve, I get sent out to the field every year for a few weeks. And there have been some pretty rugged places we've been to, Camp Roberts, Fort Hunter Liggett. If you've been there, you know it's not fun. And when we go, we would live in tents, we sleep on cots, our floor is sand. If we are lucky enough to get showers, they're rugged. If we don't, we start to smell really bad after a couple days. Um, but the point is, and you know, it's, 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 not, it's, it's just not a fun place. And you're eating army food. Okay, it's not the stuff you're going to get from Chef Ramsay or on Chopped. Okay, now none of us live during those three weeks. They say two weeks, but they always send us for three. Anyway, you don't live in those tents as if it's a permanent home. No one thinks that way. No one does, right? We don't treat the tent as if it's our house. We don't take our paychecks and start buying furniture for our tents. We don't put appliances in it. Why? Because we know it's a temporary dwelling. We know that our paychecks are going to go to putting stuff in our houses where we permanently live. That's our home. Well, take this as an illustration. It's kind of the same thing. When you live for this world as if this life is the only thing you've got, then you're, you're more or less clinging to scraps of a piece of junk world. Okay? And if you are seeking the admiration of a piece of junk society which Augustine called the city of man, then you are not living as if you believe this world is temporary. You are not living as if he walked out of that tomb alive. You're just not. You're living like this is all we got. You're making a tent your permanent home. But as Christians, it's not supposed to be that way. We can live for the perfect age to come because that tomb was empty. This world, again, is just the tents of the field. You set up what you need only to get by in this world. But instead, you seek first the kingdom of God. That's what he says. And everything else will be given to us. What we need will be given, right? God will give us what we need. But we're supposed to be living for that world, right? As we move from this rugged dump into the celestial city of God. And the more we realize this is a dump, the less we will cling to it, okay? Unfortunately, we have allowed ourselves to be tricked to think that poo is gold, and it's not. I probably could have used a better example. But anyway, <laughs> it's not. Sadly... Wealthy nations like ours, it's easy for believers to get too distracted by things and stuff. And so they take their eyes off the celestial city of God. They are missing what that empty tomb means for us. It means something far better is coming for us. So in the meantime, loved ones, we need to live for God. We need to obey Christ's command to use the time that we have here to tell the whole world about Jesus. 
because that's why we're still here, okay? So that's one thing the resurrection means, hope. We're going to be resurrected. We're going to have eternal life. The second thing that it means, it also means our redemption is guaranteed. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He says this about Jesus. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, I'm going to break this down, but first let me just tell you that humans have two really big problems when it comes to eternal life. First, if you are going to earn eternal life, you have to have a perfect record <clears throat> excuse me, of fulfilling every single command that God has ever given us. You have to fulfill them all, all the time. Have you done that? No. Second, if you are going to earn eternal life, you have to have never once ever done anything wrong. No sins. Your record has to be flawless. I remember as a 17-year-old unbeliever, I asked a preacher, how many sins does it take to go to hell? He told me one. I got baptized three days later. Okay? <laughs> so the point is, we've all done something wrong. You cannot earn eternal life. So if you're going to get eternal life, it has to be given to you by God as a gift. But guess what? Those two requirements are still there. You still have to have a perfect record of keeping God's commands, and you have to have a perfect record of never sinning. Otherwise, if God gives you eternal life, he's an unjust judge. So this is a big problem, isn't it? So what was God's solution? It was to send Jesus. It was for the second person of the Trinity to enter his own creation humbly as a man and to live a perfect life and to keep every single command that God ever gave. He was also to live a perfect life and never sin, not even once. And Jesus did that. Now, why did he do that? He did that so that he could give us the credit of what he earned and he could take the penalty of what we earned. Then everything would be squared with the house. Listen, if you're in debt and a billionaire pays your debt and then gives you the rest of his money, you're not only not in debt, but you're rich. You're squared with the house and you're rich. That's what's happening. Jesus is the richest one out there. Okay? So what he does is he, he earned that perfect righteousness to give it to us and then takes our penalty so he could pay it so that we don't owe anything for our sins. Okay? That is how it works. That is how God saves sinners. That is why he had to die. And that's what his disciples didn't understand. So he gives believers the credit of Jesus' perfect life of obedience and sinlessness. And then he gave Jesus the punishment of our life of sin and, an and, and sin and disobedience. And that is why he was nailed to the cross. Well, here's the thing. If Jesus is going to give us the credit of his perfection, if he's going to transfer from his account to your account 2,000 years later, because we weren't alive back then, then wouldn't he need to be alive to do that? Dead people don't transfer anything. Dead people don't give gifts. I've never had a dead guy knock on my door and give me a Christmas present. They don't give you anything. Somebody has to be alive to give you something. Yet look back at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. The first half says, he was delivered up for our trespasses. Okay, that is how he removes our sin of debt. He was delivered up for our sins. He died for us. But if he's dead, how could he give us his righteousness? Look at the second half. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The justification comes because of the resurrection. See, the word justification in the Bible, in the New Testament, means to be declared righteous by God. You don't have your own righteousness. You need Jesus' righteousness. And so he was raised so that God could declare you righteous. Jesus would have to be alive to transfer that to your account. If he was dead, that couldn't happen. 
So that's why I said the second thing the resurrection means for us is total redemption for everyone who believes. It means he successfully paid for all of our sins, and we'll never have to. And it means he successfully gave us the credit of his perfect record so that we could inherit eternal life. The resurrection is the proof and guarantee of all of that. So resurrection means, Jesus' resurrection, I should say, means eternal life for us, our own resurrection, and it means redemption. But that's not all. It also means we can understand the scriptures. You might have never connected that with the resurrection, but it's true. See, the entire time that Jesus was doing his earthly ministry, his disciples consistently missed the point of the scriptures, kept putting their feet in their mouth, right, in their mouths. The religious authorities, the experts, the scribes also missed what the scriptures were ultimately about because they're about Jesus, right? Without Jesus as the focal point, as the key, people will consistently miss the ultimate point of every text of the Bible, both Old Testament and later the New. And yet, with Jesus raising from the dead, believers are now able to put it all together. We are able to understand the word of God. Look at Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45. Jesus raises from the dead. And as a result of that, look what happens. He appears to his disciples, and here's what it says. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled, right? And he told them that, he showed them that, but they're like, they're not getting it. And then verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That is by virtue of his resurrection. Since the scriptures all point to Christ, he is the only way to understand them. So he schooled his disciples on this point, showed them where he's everywhere in the scripture, and then he supernaturally opened their minds to see it. This is why in the rest of the New Testament, the apostles consistently show us Jesus in the Old Testament. I mean, just think of everything we've seen in Romans so far as we've been going through that. They keep showing us Christ in the Old Testament. And listen, because we are disciples too, we could do the same thing. Christ has given us the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to open our minds to understand the scriptures. You simply have to read the Bible with Christ in mind, faithfully opening your mind and heart to Christ in the scripture, and the Holy Spirit will start working this in your mind and writing it in your heart. The word of God will take its effect. And listen, you will know God better if you study the word, which you can because of the resurrection. It will make you wise in this world. It will give you discernment. It will help you live a much more faithful life. It will help you to imitate the Lord Jesus. Listen, this gives you discernment for living in this messed up world. Christians should be the wisest people in the world. We should be the most discerning about good and evil. We should be the best with our finances. We should be the best parents. We should be the best husbands and wives. Should we not? We got the word of God. We got the mind of Christ. And so you might ask, well, why aren't Christians? Because they're not reading this. They're ignoring one of the, the one of the big things that comes as a result of the resurrection. He walked out of that tomb. You can now understand this. So get in the word, start doing what the word says, and guess what? That wisdom will change the way we live, and it will change the way we think. I think this is one benefit of the resurrection that a lot of us just ignore, and we need to stop. Now, there's also another thing that his resurrection means for believers. We are brought into God's own mission. See, the Father sent the Son to seek and save the lost. He sent the Son to bring about the salvation of people from every nation. Well, Jesus' plan in doing this had two components. The first part was him earning that perfect righteousness, dying for sinners, and raising on the third day. Okay, By doing so, he did everything it takes to save people. 
Only Jesus could do that part, right? And he did it. People simply have to believe in him and they receive these benefits, okay? They have to live for him. That proves they believe in him. But yeah, they receive these benefits, okay? So Jesus did all that work in the first part. The second part, though, he gives to us. Now that we've been saved, Jesus calls us into God's own mission to save the world. I want you to look at John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. The disciples are still hiding at this point because they haven't seen Jesus, the risen Jesus yet. They're terrified. But then they see him, then they rejoice, and he says something very important. John chapter 20, starting at verse 19. It says, when it was evening on that first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because they feared the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. After saying this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, that's huge. The resurrected Jesus appears to them. They rejoice. It was just as he promised. He lives, and because he lives, we'll live. But there's more. Jesus says, just as the Father sent me, meaning in the same way, I send you into the world. He then gives them the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to empower their words as they go and preach the gospel to the lost. Same thing is true of us, right? Loved ones, we have received the same Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in eternity past worked out a plan to save people from every nation. And now that we believe, the God of the universe drafts us into his own plan to save the lost. So now it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and us that seeks to save the lost, right? That seeks and saves the lost. And so again, We're drafted into this in light of the resurrection. The Father sent the Son. The Son then raises from the dead, and the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit, and then the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit send us. That is what this is saying. We are part of God's own mission, the missio dei, right? That is is what we're part of. It is the resurrected Jesus who says, I'm sending you as the Father sent me. It's the resurrected Jesus that gives the believers the Holy Spirit. And again, this is another privilege, that believers have due to the resurrection that a lot of us ignore, and we shouldn't. This is what we're supposed to be doing. So, for believers, the resurrection of Christ means we will have eternal life, we'll have complete redemption, we have the ability to understand the word of God and grow in it, and now we're part of God's special team to bring about the salvation of even more people. Again, all that comes from the resurrection. It stems from that. But, and so that's why I said the resurrection means so much more than just Jesus coming back to life. It means all of this. But there's one more thing I want to bring up about what it means for us, for we believers. Okay, this one is huge. Jesus raising from the dead also means that we are going to rule the universe with him. And you might be like, huh? But that's exactly what's going to happen. Okay, remember, it's amazing. We already saw that the resurrection made Jesus the king of the universe as a man, as God, Jesus, already rules. But by adding humanity to himself, he now rules as both God and man. So think about this. Think about this. His divinity unites him with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But his humanity unites him with us. And both natures, again, subsist in the one person. And so through that connection of common humanity with us, once he saves us, he's going to bring us into his own divine rulership of everything. 
When we get resurrected and we are made to be like him, we will get to share with him much of what is his. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 28. This is the first promise he makes. Jesus says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from the Father. Now, he is quoting Psalm chapter 2, where the Messiah is the one who rules. And he just says, I've received that from the Father because I'm the Messiah. But he says, you're going to get to do this with me. So what is the Messiah's now is ours. So Christ's kingship of the nation, nations will be shared with those who believe. But it's even more than this. In the next chapter, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, look what Jesus says to the faithful. He says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Try chewing on that one for a while, okay? Jesus, as the God-man, because he conquered, now sits on the throne of the Father, on the throne of God. And yet he promises that we will sit with him on his throne. That's mind-blowing. So God's not only saving us from our sins and giving us eternal life, which would be more than enough, dianu in Hebrew, it'd be more than enough, but he's also sharing his own kingship with us. And the resurrection is the link that makes this possible. See, the death, burial, and resurrection is how Jesus conquered. And because of his conquest, he says, because of that, I'm sitting on, with the Father on his throne. But then he says, we who conquer, and the way we conquer is we believe in him and we serve him and we persevere to the end by his own strength. That's how we conquer. He says, then we will get to join with him in his sitting on the Father's throne. So he who is the ruler of the universe invites that into that rule, invites us into that same rule when he makes everything right again. That is what this empty tomb means for believers. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, okay? So yes, the resurrection means even that. Now at the beginning, I asked what means this stone? Okay, what does it mean that Christ rose from the dead? It means everything that's been said so far. It means a lot in general. It means a lot for believers. But there's also something very important that this means for the unbeliever. Simply put, If you reject the lordship of Jesus Christ, then you are still in your sin. And the Bible is very clear as to what Christ's resurrection means for you. Let's look at Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. It says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So again, raising him from the dead, the resurrection, is now connected to judgment. Now that Christ has risen from the dead, Paul is telling us here that God has appointed a day that he is going to judge. He came, Jesus came 2,000 years ago as the Savior. He's going to come again very soon as the judge. And everyone who is still in their sin will be condemned forever. This is why God is commanding everyone everywhere to repent. That means to turn away from your sins. You can't hold on to God and Zeus at the same time. And it's the same thing for the Christian who says, yeah, I raised my hand and said a prayer, but I'm still going to live for myself and not turn to God, not turn away from my sins. You are a liar in that case. So he tells you, you got to repent. You got to turn from that sin. Okay, it won't be perfect, but you'll be moving in that direction constantly. Okay, God's commanding everyone everywhere to repent. They turn from the sin and then they turn to God in belief. You're to believe on the Lord. 
So what he's saying is if you are an unbeliever and you repent and you believe, then you will be saved. The resurrection will mean everything to you that I've already said. But if you refuse, then this passage says Jesus will judge you for your sin. And proof of this is that God raised him from the dead. Now you might be thinking to yourself, I'm a good person, so this can't be true. But you need to understand something. You don't get to define what a good person is. Every person in jail says they're a good person. Okay, They do. When they talk to their, their case handlers, they're like, I'm a good person. And then they open up the file and say, not based on this. you know. But everybody thinks they're a good person. We're not the ones who get to define who's a good person. The judge does. And the judge, meaning God, says his standard is perfection. He said, be perfect because I am perfect. That's his standard. So if you're not perfect, then you're guilty. So let me ask you, are you perfect? Let's compare ourselves to just a few of the Ten Commandments. We'll just go with six. Have you ever told a lie before? You know you have, and if you say no, you're lying now. Okay? What does that make you? A liar. Have you ever stolen before? You know you have. What does that make you? A thief. Have you ever lusted for someone before? Jesus said that is adultery in the heart. So now what he's telling you is God's not only holding you accountable for sinful actions, your sinful thoughts are still sin as well. And he knows every single one of them because he's the infinite God who's omniscient. He's going to hold you accountable for that. Have you ever been so angry with someone that even for a moment you thought you could just kill them? Jesus said that's murder in the heart. Again, God's going to hold that against you. Have you ever used God's name in vain before? Like using his name or the name of the God-man who rules the universe as a cuss word? That one always irks me. Nobody's saying, you know, Muhammad prophet as they're cussing or whatever. Or, you know, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. No, but they do this with the man who rules the universe. His name, they are crazy. And the bottom line is, right? If you've used God's name in vain, that's called blasphemy. And he will not hold the blasphemer guiltless. Have you ever dishonored your parents before? If you say no, we'll just call them up, you know, and they'll tell you. And if you've dishonored your parents, the Bible calls you a rebel, right? Now look, we've just looked at six commandments, and it's clear that everyone here is a lying, thieving, blasphemous, rebellious, adulterous, murderer at heart. There's a total of 613 laws, and we just went over six. And so you still think you're a good person? You think that the holy and righteous judge of the universe who hates sin is going to look at you and say you're innocent? He'd be lying if he did that. He's not going to do that. No, you know you're guilty. And because he's God, he definitely knows you're guilty. And he's not going to lie and say you're not guilty. Okay? And it doesn't matter if Hitler's worse than you. I've tried that one before I became a believer. Well, I didn't do what Hitler did. So that's not what God's comparing me to. God's comparing me to his standard, to his requirement. So we have all missed the mark. So again... It comes back to what I've already said. God requires a perfect life where every command was obeyed and a perfect life where no sin was ever committed. Only Jesus has done that. And only through Jesus can you be saved. If you try to stand before God on your own, we've already seen, you've already failed. But if instead you fall down in mercy at the foot of the cross and you say to Jesus, Jesus, I need you. I need the credit of your righteousness. I need the payment that you made on the cross to cover my sin. Thank you for loving me and doing that for me. I love you, Jesus. I give myself to you. I turn away from my sin. My whole life is yours, okay? That is what biblical faith is. If you do this, all your sins will be forgiven, every last one of them. And listen, right now, 
it is still possible for Jesus to be your Savior. But if you continue in your rebellion, then a day is coming when it will be too late. And that day could be today. You don't know how many days you have left. You could get in a car accident on the way home. You could have a heart attack out of the blue. You just don't know. And what I'm telling you is if you pass him up as your Savior, then you will meet him as your judge. And we don't want that to happen to anybody. So believe on the Lord with all your heart. We implore you. Listen, it is a historic fact that that tomb was empty, that Jesus rose from the dead. If you want proof, go listen to my Easter sermon from last year or Pastor Josh's from the year before. We both gave a lot of historical evidence. It is beyond dispute, right? It's beyond contestation. You cannot contest the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So you could go to sermonaudio.com, type in Sovereign Way. You could go find our last couple Easter sermons, and you will get two hours worth of historical facts that prove Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, the evidence is overwhelming. So don't be foolish, right? I didn't want to focus on that this year because I did that last year. This year, I wanted to focus on what this means, what the resurrection means. And one thing I do want to say, just by way of evidence, not so much for the resurrection, but just for Jesus in general. Jesus fulfilled 109 prophecies in the Bible, 109 in his first coming. Those are facts. They're indisputable. The odds of just one man fulfilling even eight of the 109 prophecies is 100 million billion. That number is millions of times greater than the total number of people who've ever lived. Not only that, with those odds, if you want a visual picture, you could cover the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet high. You could randomly mark one of them, blindfold a guy, and on his first time, he would pick up the one that is marked. That's the odds of one human and one lifetime fulfilling only eight prophecies. Jesus fulfilled 109 Renowned mathematician Peter Stoner calculated the odds of someone fulfilling 48 prophecies, which is nearly not even half the ones Jesus fulfilled. And that number, and I promise you I'm not being obnoxious with this, I'm actually saying what he wrote. That number was one in a trillion, 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 trillion. We don't even have a number for that. We don't even have a concept for that. And that's less than half the prophecies. So Jesus is Lord. The Bible is the word of God. And he climbed out of that tomb. So what means this stone? Jesus is risen. And this carries so much meaning. So as I wrap this up, I'm going to speak first to those who have believed on Jesus and then to those who have not. To the believer, you have now seen this morning what the resurrection means for you. So I want to encourage you with that. Let me encourage you in the one in whom you have believed and the one in whom you've trusted. Now listen, I want to be real, okay? Although Christ has guaranteed the salvation for we who believe in him, death still hurts us during this present evil age, doesn't it? Okay? This empty tomb is the sign of what's to come, but it's not fully here yet. Okay, so we still deal with death. It robs us of our loved ones. It robs us of more time to do good in the name of the Lord. Death more than anything else causes us our greatest emotional pain in our lives. If you have lost someone, you know what I'm talking about. But here's the good news. Death does not get the last word. It doesn't. And so it's encouraging to know that death doesn't get the last word, isn't it? Isn't it marvelous to picture that a day is coming when death will be undone? Isn't it marvelous to know that the war will be over? Imagine with me for one moment. This war is not like other wars. In other wars, if the good guys win... 
Still afterwards, everywhere you look, you see the collateral damage. You see blown up cities. You see massive graveyards. You're still left with all the damage of the war. The war might be over, but you go on living with that damage all behind you. If your best friend dies in the war, you don't get him back just because the war is over. But the war against death is different. We will not be stuck with any collateral damage. Every bit of the damage done by death gets reversed. Our loved ones who are in Christ will come back to life with better bodies. You will never lose them again. A day is coming where you will never have to say goodbye again. No more tears. Furthermore, there will be a new heavens and a new earth where the marks of death won't even exist. Any victory that death has claimed in this present will entirely be reversed. But it's going to be more than just hitting a rewind button. What will exist then, what will be then, is a billion times better than anything that death once destroyed. So death destroyed this world. We're going to get a better world. Death destroys these bodies. We're going to get better bodies. Death separates relationships in this world which are strained by sin. We will get those relationships back for people who are in the Lord, and yet it will be with the existence of no sin, which means perfect relationships that last forever. So truly, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. In light of that, Paul the Apostle actually taunted death in that passage. He mocks it. He makes fun of its weakness. He calls it weak. He says, where death is your victory, where death is your sting. Now, I find that both amazing and encouraging. Death is the most unconquerable foe against humanity, but our victory is so guaranteed in Jesus Christ that we can actually, with Paul, taunt death. We can say, where is your victory? You have no victory. Death, you will be swallowed up whole. All the damage you did will be reversed. For trillions and trillions and trillions of years, there will be no evidence that you ever even existed. You were that insignificant, death. You might seem totally significant right now, but what is your reign of terror that is only going to last a couple thousand years or several thousand years? What is that compared to your demise and your non-existence, which will last forever and ever and ever and ever? Death, you will be undone. And so, loved ones, we get to hold on to that hope. We get to hold on to that expectation of certainty. So take courage, brothers and sisters, for Christ has already won the victory, the tomb is empty. The stone is rolled away. Christ is risen. Death is dying. Amen? Amen. Now, for any unbelievers, simply put, I've already told you how you can switch from being those who will be judged to being those who will inherit this eternal life. It's real simple. You just need to turn away from your sins and believe on Jesus Christ who raised from the dead. Okay, there's no magic formula to this. There's no secret prayer. You don't have to bloody your knees climbing up some stairs to some church, you know, to to prove your piety to God. You simply need to say, Lord, I'm done doing this. I'm done. I'm turning away from my sin, and I turn to you. You are my Lord. You're my king. I belong to you now, and you will be saved. And so if that is something you want to do this morning, we're not going to have you raise your hand and, you know, play an emotional tune and, you know, tell five people who are already saved to walk up so you'll feel comfortable to walk up. We're not going to do any of those gimmicks. We're simply going to pray. We're going to sing. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. Then we're going to sing another song after that. And after the service is over and you're dismissed, just come up to me or any of the leaders after, and I'll talk to you as long as you need to and just explain salvation to you uh, more if you have more questions on this. But don't walk out of here today still in your sin. Now is the day of salvation. If you're unsaved right now, 
You're here for a reason. God brought you here to hear this. So it's time you respond to it and you come to the Lord and be saved. Now we're going to pray. We're going to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is only for believers. This is where we, we pictorially remember what Christ did to save us through bread and through juice. Okay, it's for believers who've identified with Christ in baptism. If that's you, partake with us. If not, we would just ask you to observe. But that being said, let's pray, and then the worship team will come back up. Lord God, we thank you so much just for you being God. We thank you for you coming out of that tomb alive, Jesus. We thank you for everything. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is you. And you've brought with you salvation, and you have taken death captive. And we thank you for that, Jesus. And one day, death is just going to be tossed out of existence. We thank you. We love you, Lord. May we cling to these truths. And may we live according to these truths. And we pray that those who don't know you will embrace these truths and come to know you on this day. We pray that there will be many, many celebrations in heaven on this day for many lost people coming to you and being saved. We know that you rejoice over one lost sinner. We pray for millions on this day. And so, Lord, may you be glorified, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.